0: We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land throughout Australia on which we are recording. We pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging. Hello and welcome to the Doyen Interviews, the podcast that speaks to inspiring women from the art, architecture and design world. I'm Bridget Nathan and I'm glad you've tuned in. Thank you also to Anon for the beautiful introductory music. Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Doyen Interviews podcast. I'm chatting to Catherine Liu today, who is an amazing architectural photographer based in New South Wales. We spoke a lot about some interesting topics, for example, Instagram and its effect that it can have on our mental health. Scrolling through Instagram has become pretty much a part of my life But I often question how much good it's really doing and the quality of information. Catherine spoke about an interesting topic, which is the hierarchy of images. So when you view something on Instagram, everything appears to be the same or at the same level of quality whereas the reality is images are coming from everywhere and if you were to have another medium such as a website you would perhaps stagger images to include projects that you'd spent more time on with a greater focus. It was also really interesting to hear about what it was like to establish yourself as a photographer before Instagram existed. This is a topic that we've discussed earlier in the series in our interview with Claire Cousins. It was great to talk to Catherine, I had a great time, and I hope you enjoy this interview. So, welcome Catherine, thank you for joining me today. How is everything going in New South Wales at the moment? Um, What's your COVID experience been like?
1: It's been uneventful, which is good, not complaining here. I mean, I was just reading on Twitter about everything that's going on in Victoria, so I I think we're pretty lucky here in Sydney. (laughs)
0: Yeah, it's been um, pretty interesting recently getting into our second extended lockdown. I guess that's
1: just the way it's going to be until we have a vaccine. It's just going to be up and down, lockdowns and no lockdowns. Um, I guess having a lockdown is better than being sick. So we went out for dinner the other night and it was such a novelty. (laughs) I usually work from home anyway, so it hasn't been that different for me because, you know, I have my routine at home and I get the work done. But I know for a lot of my friends, it's a bit weird. So having to, I mean, they've realized the freedom of being able to, you know, put your laundry on and do a bit of work and take your laundry out. But at the same time, I know a lot of people prefer to have work and home
0: pretty separate. Yeah, it's definitely um, changed things up for a lot of people. it would be great to hear a little bit about your career. Um, Is it mainly architectural photography that you do or are there other things that you photograph as well?
1: So only architectural, so architecture
0: and interiors
1: and that can go, that can range from residential, public buildings, schools, retail, hospitality, I mean museums, exhibitions, so it's really a bit of everything, um, anything and everything to do with architecture. So I come from an interior design background. I studied for about four years at UTS doing interior design and didn't become an interior designer because I knew by my fourth year that I just didn't want to do it, Um, which was, I guess, pretty late of a discovery, but I found out regardless. And it was kind of funny because our year was pretty much a dud year, and I don't think many many people from my you became interior designers anyway. So, <laughs> um, and I eventually went to TAFE, Ultimo TAFE and did cert for in photo imaging. And I don't know if that's what the course is called now. And again, and didn't finish it because I realized during those years at TAFE that they weren't going to teach me anything on architectural photography. And I, pretty much straight up asked the tutor that question and she said not a lot of it's going to be studio work which I wasn't really interested in so I figured instead of spending the next two or three years there I'd just go out and try and find some work.
0: Wow um, what was that process like starting your own thing and moving into photography?
1: I think anyone in any creative industry would you know go through the same struggles where it's not a straightforward career it's not as if you studied law or accounting or something and you have your resume and your grades and you you know go up to an office and you apply for a job kind of thing. So no one, to be honest, like no one cares about your scores or your grades or what honors you got at uni. They only care about your portfolio. And in order to have a good portfolio, you need work. <laughs> So it's kind of this—it's kind of this vicious cycle of where do you start, right? Um, It's—it took me quite a few years. I mean, it took me a long time to eventually work full time as a photographer. I—I I assisted a lot of photographers at the start, and uh, you know, ranging from obviously architectural photographers to advertising to weddings, and it was a process of elimination for me of figuring out what I didn't want to do and then I kind of got down to architectural photography which I quite enjoyed Um, so that was an interesting process in itself and as I was assisting I was also trying to find my own work and I also had all these day jobs like admin and retail just so I could pay rent and have grocery money (laughs) so I mean like I think the story is you know the story here is there's no shame in day jobs do the day jobs <laughs> if they can you know if they can get you by and it means that you're not under some sort of financial burden then you know you're in a better state of mind to actually look for the work that you want to do
0: yeah and um have you found that it's been a process to get you to where you are today
1: i've been in the industry for a bit over a decade and assisting John. Do you know John Gollings? He's based in Melbourne. Yes, yeah, so I was assisting John for a good probably five years or so. Um, so it took probably over a decade to get to the point where I felt financially comfortable and earning an income that could, um, that I could just live off, basically.
0: Wow. Um, and have you found that the business skills that you need to run your business have been learnt a lot on the job?
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, no one teaches you about how to run a business. (laughs) I mean, you know, when you're studying photography or even if you're doing interior design, it's not like they sit you down and go, well, this is how taxes work. (laughs) This is how you, you know, keep all your receipts, (laughs) find a good accountant. Like, no one teaches you that. So I've lit- I'm literally learning on the fly and at certain points of my career and even now, if I have a question, I'll email or message John or I'll email his bookkeeper <laughs> pretty much say, how do I set this out in my invoice? And I truly think that that's a huge aspect of the industry that people just don't pay attention to. That I really, you know, it's so practical and it's so important. It doesn't matter how creative you are or how great your work is. If you don't know how to manage your business, <laughs> where's it going to go? You need at the most basic of you need money for rent and groceries and equipment and insurance and you don't know how to manage your finances or, you know, what to say or ask an accountant, then I think you're pretty screwed. <laughs> it's hard enough you know, trying to get work without all the financial aspects of it. But if you realize that you don't have enough for rent, then it adds a different level of stress to a, to an already stressful situation. And I think a lot of people, you know, and this is, again, coming back to day jobs, um, I guess the idea is not to take it so personally just because it's a day job. It's no, It's not a failure in your career it's not a failure in your work a day job is a day job
0: yeah that I totally agree with that um and is it uh, as well a lot about forming a network and knowing who to talk to um and building up those relationships with potential clients like what was that kind of process like oh I had no network (laughs) no network to start off with
1: and remember there was no instagram (laughs) So it wasn't like I could post a photo and tag the architects or even hashtag anything. There was no Instagram. (laughs) And and I was not, you know, I knew nothing about the architecture industry. Um, I basically bought a whole heap of magazines, looked through the work and the architects and the photographers who were involved. I emailed the photographers to ask them for assisting work. I emailed the architects asking to shoot their projects for free, and or, or even to show my portfolio, which I had, you know, holiday snaps, you know, <laughs> you know, photos of pretty buildings overseas that have nothing to do with me, but that's all I've got, right? Um, and I, and you know, I would keep this logbook of who I had emailed and what they said, and who was the contact there, and I would always make sure that I would follow up. In the next week or so, to say, "Hey, did you look at my portfolio? What did you think?" Um, it was it was really hard, you know. A lot of the times, if it's a big company, you have to get through the receptionist, and you don't know who you, you genuinely don't know who you need to speak to. Um, and at the same time, whenever I saw an interior or a building that I thought I could practice on, I would take a photo and I would you know slowly add that to my portfolio, which was on Flickr, by the way. I didn't have a website. <laughs> It was on dodgy (laughs) Flickr and no Instagram, no website. And I would print these photos out and have some sort of semblance of a portfolio to show someone. And I was really lucky in the sense that, you know, John was the first person who said that, you know, sure, you know, he'll use me as an assistant because it was cheaper for him to have a Sydney assistant than to bring a Melbourne Melbourne assistant to Sydney. So I was like, hey, I'm cheap, you know, use me kind of thing. (laughs) And And then that worked out. And at the same time, I had a few architects who obviously saw something in the photos that I showed them and said, sure, you know, here, take photos of this small project that I have. And um, Hannah Tribe was one of them, one of my very first early clients who decided to take a chance on me when I literally, I had very little to show for myself. <laughs> and I think it kind of snowed from there. You know, it's all gradual. You get one client, then you can show that client's work to the second client and say, hey, I've actually done some work. And you gradually build up, you know, the experience and the technique while you're doing all that. But it takes a while. But now, you know, now I feel like it's a lot easier because everyone uses Instagram. If they see that you've shot for one particular client that they know, then they'll probably hire you or at least email you for the next job.
0: Mm, That's interesting to hear you talk a little bit about Instagram. Um, I know we spoke about it before this interview started um, in terms of, you know, questions and themes. I'm really interested to hear about your thoughts on Instagram being a professional photographer. It's a tool that everybody is on at the moment to take photos and to share images. How does that affect you and what are your thoughts on it?
1: Yeah, it's a marketing tool. I mean, I know people who would look at would look at Instagram rather than my website. And I update it more than I update my website because it's so easy and you just need one photo and you just put it there. Um, I have this love hate relationship with it. I understand why I need it, but I don't find it that fun anymore. <laughs> so if you you know like when I first started and I had it, it was actually quite interesting. you know it introduces you to people you don't know and you can start forming these communities and you know who's doing what. But now it gets to a point where it becomes, this is work you know, and that's part of my gripe about it.
0: Yeah. And sometimes everything on Instagram looks um, pretty similar. Do you think that um, it can cause things to be a bit like same, same? And have you experienced or do you have any thoughts on the effect that Instagram can have um, on people's mental health? Oh, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. I'm kind of glad that when I started, I didn't have Instagram because I was able to truly figure out my way of shooting, how I wanted to shoot, the style in which I wanted to shoot. And I wasn't influenced by likes or comments. And I think that can be quite dangerous and you can start losing your voice once outside opinion starts influencing your work. So I'm kind of glad I was away from all that noise. And, you know, I still feel the effect. You know, you start seeing trends on Instagram and people start photographing the same way or some of the architecture starts looking the same. And I, you know, that's kind of like the social media effect where you can't help but be influenced by it. If you talk about photography, you can't ignore Instagram right now at this point in time. Um, It's any photo that you take on a shoot, you know, it's going to be posted on social media. And I've had instances where clients have asked for a certain shot because it works on Instagram. So Instagram is like this comfort zone where you you keep scrolling and you look at pretty pictures and you don't really, it's just bad for digestion. (laughs) It's like, you know, you've eaten a whole bag of lollies and it was delicious at that time. but What did you actually get out of it? (laughs) It looks good and it tastes really good. yeah and you know and with that if you're talking about mental health you're also talking about unconsciously comparing yourself to other people you know like is my work as good why isn't this person using me you know all those all those questions all those questions that are really unhelpful (laughs) And, and the the thing that does kind of annoy me a little is Instagram makes everything equal so you can put a good photo next to a bad photo but they're they're treated equally so you can you can put a good building you know on a post after a bad building whatever bad means and they're both and they're treated equally so I find that there's you know, a lack of criticism or critical thinking on Instagram. <laughs> it serves a purpose and it's like comfort food. And it's like, you know, a, a bag of Alan's snakes. But I don't know what you actually learn from it. <laughs> it's just, well, yeah, it is more or less just there. And it's also what is the end game of Instagram? So it's part of it is a popularity contest. So, you know, before they took likes away, it was the amount of likes you got or the amount of comments you got and the amount of engagement you got and that determined how good that photo or that architecture was so there's no there's no professional or criti- professional critique on it unlike you know if you purchased a magazine or something and someone's actually gone through the effort to explore the house write about the house and describe the house and then you have all that information and you decide whether it's good or bad I just feel like because everything is treated equally, you know, I can post photos of a five-bedroom mansion that I've taken photos of, which I can't really relate to, but I'll take the photos. And then the next day I can post photos of a one-bedroom apartment, which is my current living situation, and that I can relate to. But, you know, if you throw in issues of sustainability and how much we should be building and how big we should then where's the critique there there's there's no critique they're treated equally there's no good or bad it's it's just you know pretty pictures i mean i certainly know the mental health side effect you know like i said before there's the I, there's the nagging comparisons between you know my work and other people's work and then you're also talking about photos on instagram a lot of them look quite perfect <laughs> So you are inclined to shoot that way because you know it works on Instagram and then you know it will generate the publicity that you need. Um, And, again, that trickles down to how you're going to shoot. Are you going to shoot with that in mind or are you going to shoot the way you should be shooting, which is to be more descriptive and to, you know, provide a good, well-rounded story on the building. And, you know, the one photo on Instagram is not a description of the building.
0: Yeah, and I'm guessing as well working on a shoot, it's not always the glossy photo that you see at the end. There's probably a lot of things that happen to get you there. Um, what's it like working on a photography shoot for architecture? Um, what sort of things do you need and um, what's the what's the process?
1: Um, it depends on the project and depends. You know, I consider it a bit like Survivor where you're dumped on an island and you just have to make do <laughs> and you've never seen this island. So it's it's really rare that I get to see the building beforehand. I just turn up and you're like, okay, this is what we're working with. <laughs> and so you kind of, you know, and obviously having experience in shooting buildings and being in those different weather conditions and different lighting conditions helps um in you know in the rare case that I get to visit the building, then I can plan it out a bit better. um I shot a building recently, probably March or something, and it was a rare project where I had five six days in the building, and I could shoot and reshoot and cover everything that I wanted to cover and I can, you know, walk away from that project knowing that I've literally done everything I can. And most of the time when someone books you for a half-day shoot, you're there for half a day and, you know, the sun, you know, sets earlier in winter and so you have less daylight hours. So you've really just got to plan your day and prioritise the shots that you need to do and just be really flexible and just keep checking the weather conditions. So, you know, there's no... I guess there's no hard and fast rule to do it, but the one guiding principle would be keep checking where the sun is
0: <laughs> and just mm,
1: work with that.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's some good tips. Um, have you found as well that it changes um, the way that you view and experience space?
1: Definitely, and I, and I find that I'm a bit more critical about it as well. Um, You pick up a sense of what works and what doesn't pretty quickly. <laughs> it's, it's, and, and, you know, it comes in really handy if you're um, in a hotel or you're looking at floor plans on realestate.com.au or something, you know, well, that is just bad planning. <laughs> so it's helped in that sense, you know, on an in an everyday sense. And I am actually a lot more aware of, the more tactile things, things like sound and, you know, smell and, you know, how the, you know, the textures of a building, you know, these are things that I do unconsciously pick up on. And it's a good reminder that whatever building it is in the wider context, it's a building in a community. And, you know, you've, you're have you always looking at how this particular building relates to the rest of the street.
0: Yeah. Um, and have you found as well... But um, there have been, I'm sure there have been challenges getting photos done and um, getting everything into the lens and um, back to the client. What are some of the, the things that um, you've experienced so far? So
1: incomplete buildings are a big problem. Buildings that uh, are unfinished, <laughs> so you're moving fences, <laughs> you know, trying to tuck cables in, um, patching things up, The floor is dirty because the builder's just left and they haven't cleaned the floors. The only reason why you'd want to shoot an incomplete building would be like handovers the next day or something or awards coming up and they need to shoot it there and then. Um, A lot of the times the landscaping is not finished but they don't want to wait another year and I think landscaping makes a huge difference to the photo. You know, instead of photographing a dirt patch, (laughs) it'd be nice to actually have something there. And obviously weather conditions, you know, that's always problematic for me. You know, you have, you know, sun one minute and then rain the other and you you got to quickly think about what shots need sun, you know, like your exterior shots. And so you get, you know, you do them first because you know that rain's going to come in a matter of minutes. So that's something to keep an eye on. But, I mean, I think if you can respond and react quickly, then, You know, it turns out to be a pretty good shoot if you can do that.
0: Yeah, it sounds like there's definitely a lot of things to consider. Um, I'm really interested to ask about your own um, influences and different photographers that you admire. Um, Who are the big names in Australia that you've always looked up to or are influenced by and um, also who are you looking at internationally?
1: I mean, yeah. So John would be obviously the first choice. Um, he, I guess, more than a boss, he's more of a mentor, and he pretty much taught me everything that I could, you know, that I know now. That he could. Um, but I also worked with Peter Bennett and Shannon McGrath and Murray Fredericks, who were all who are all great, great photographers, and were nice enough to teach me the, you know, teach me everything <laughs> on the spot. Um, yeah, I was, I was incredibly lucky in, you know, in the assisting front. I think if I had no aspirations to work for myself, I'd probably be still assisting John. It literally, you know, you get to, you get to do everything, but you don't have the pressure of having to satisfy your client's brief, (laughs) which is kind of really handy. Um, I think internationally, um, Hélène Binet is really, you know, does beautiful, beautiful work and possibly one of the few female architectural photographers who are out there, you know, that who has a name that people recognise. I mean, it's such a, you know, like architecture, it is a male-dominated field. So the moment I, you know, see that there's a female architectural photographer out
0: there and I'm like, oh, my God, who is she? Let me see her work. (laughs) Why do you think that the numbers um, of female or um, non non male gendered photographers are lower um, in your industry?
1: I don't know. It's like you know, architecture. Like architecture is a male dominated field. A lot of the Australian architectural photographers came from architecture, so the network was already built. I think, as with you know, a lot of the industries right now, we have a problem with diversity. (laughs) We have a problem with um, not enough women in the field, not enough people of colour in the field. Um, It's something that takes generational change and it is changing, which is good. But I think there's a common misconception that the interior's are mostly shot by women, and the exteriors and the big public buildings are still to be shot by men. And this is just my personal observation, and I have no data to back this up. <laughs> but maybe because I'm obviously one of the few female architectural photographers in Australia, I'm more aware of these things and I am more critical of these things. Um But if you look through the awards entries, which is a pretty good indication of who's doing what and who's shooting what, um, at least from what I've observed, a lot of the commercial projects are still shot by men. So, again, I have no data to back this
0: up. (laughs) And do you find um, that to be intimidating?
1: Maybe 10 years ago it would be intimidating Because 10 years ago I was younger and I look quite young as well. So a lot of people think I'm straight out of uni. Um, So it's not intimidating now because I've, in a sense, confronted those battles. So, you know, I've had clients that weren't pleasant to deal with before to the point where I had to pull out of the project because I didn't want to work with them. But. This was, like I said, very early on in my career where I didn't have enough experience in dealing with that. And I didn't know I didn't know what my boundaries were. So I was frustrated and intimidated that um, I was put in a situation where, you know, the client was putting me down and no one defended me. <laughs> no one in the room defended me and i was and i was too young to know too young and too inexperienced to know what to say and how to say it even though in my head i knew what to say i think right now my my perspective on that is a bit different because i do have the work to back me up i do have the experience of dealing with clients to back me up so i find situations like that not intimidating but rather I get angry about it. (laughs) I basically need to have my voice heard. And if you want to call that empowering or if you want to call that, you know, empowering or an improvement to my previous situation, then fine. But I guess the point of me saying all this is to let, if, if there are younger women who want to become architectural photographers, then I want them to know that you know you can have bad experiences, but you learn from it and you grow from it and you end up paving the way for yourself and other people. Coming back to that story of just my horrible client experience, at that point in time, I had assisted John for a few years. so I knew what I was doing. I had you know I had the experience of backing me up. I knew how to take a photo and you had to take a good photo. The problem was they didn't like my photos, which was fine. But it was the way he communicated that that really hurt me. And when I told John about it, his first reaction was, did you tell him you, who you've who you assisted? And I was like, oh, no, this is my own battle. I can't just name drop you. I think that that was definitely a learning curve for me because I think through that bad experience, I figured out what my boundaries were. I figured out how I didn't want to be spoken to and what, you know, what speaking to someone respectfully sounds like or doesn't sound like in that instance. And so I know that in the event that I'm ever put in that sort of situation again, I will know what to say and I will be more confident in saying it. So I think, That's the, you know, that's the bit of good that came out of that. And I think it's also, you know, looking back, it's an indictment on their company culture as well. Because if one person is speaking to another person like that and no one speaks up for that person, then I think that tells you a lot about the company culture, which I don't want to be a part of anyway. You know, like in my head I was always like, you know, be polite, be respectful, be good to the client, do the work. And you'll get to keep the job. But there are some jobs that you just don't want anymore. And walking away from a job was a big thing for me back then because I didn't have that many jobs. (laughs) But, you know, like I said, you know where your boundaries are and once someone has crossed it, that's it. Yeah. And I think you also end up with clients that you actually want to work for. Because you filtered out all the bad clients anyway. (laughs) But you kind of go, actually, no, I enjoy my work more because of the people I work with. And I think that's a better relationship and that's something that actually does last and does produce better work if the culture is good and people are treating each other respectfully. Like each time I've worked with a client, it's always like, I have my idea on how I want to shoot something but I want you to tell me what you're thinking as well because I can't read your mind. <laughs> do you know what I mean? The last thing I want is to finish the shoot and the client goes, oh, did you do this, this, and this? i are like, no, you've got to tell me from the outset. I want to hear the opinions. I want to hear the ideas and I'll see what I can do with it. But I need to know. I definitely need to know.
0: And have you found that um, where you are now and your process um, in terms of being a professional photographer? Um, has it changed a lot um, to get you to where you are today?
1: Probably in the last year or two, I've worked slower than before. <laughs> because when I started my career, I was, you know, didn't really know what I was doing, trying to find the ropes. So the process is quite slow. And then you get to a point where you're pretty confident in what you're doing. And so you end up working a lot faster, and it's a lot more efficient. But now I'm at the point where I'm working slow again because I need to find, I guess, a different point of view. So you know, John would always say you always need to try and do something different for each shoot, or try and push yourself in one way or another. And it's easier than done because how do you do it? <laughs> like how do you push yourself? And so in the last you know last year or so. I have to satisfy the client's brief, but also my brief, which includes just trying to see the building in a different way or trying to shoot the interior in a different way. And a lot of the times it doesn't, work because a lot of it is just experimenting. But when it does work, it works really well. <laughs> so I think that's just encouraged me, and it's um, reinstated my faith in the process that. If you make the mistakes and you're experimenting, you will eventually get somewhere that's good. (laughs) I don't think it's talked about enough that mistakes are actually really important. (laughs) You know, everyone loves to see these beautiful, perfect pictures, but in order to get the beautiful, perfect pictures, you kind of need to take bad pictures (laughs) and, you know, get it out of your, get it out of your system experiment and figure out what path it is that you're and what what path and what perspective you're trying to capture. And then eventually you get to a point where you've got this new kind of outlook. And I think that outlook brings, I guess, a new, either a new style or a different um, emotive quality to the photo. But I guess that's what pushing yourself means. It's getting out of your comfort zone and, Making the mistakes and knowing it's okay to take a bad photo to get to a good photo.
0: Hmm. Pretty wise words, Catherine Lou. (laughs)
1: That sounded a lot deeper than I intended, but that's pretty good. (laughs) I'm quite proud. I'm quite proud of myself now for saying all that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um. Yeah, it's so cool when you're just thinking and. That sounds pretty good. Um, Oh, Catherine, thank you so, so much for your time today. I've um, really enjoyed hearing about your career and um, also seeing your photos online. You've got some beautiful shots. um, And, yeah, hopefully I will get a chance to work with you at some point in the future. Um, And, yeah, thanks again and good luck with everything during COVID. Not a problem. Thanks for listening in today. I hope you can join us next week when we chat to Simone Bliss from SBLA, landscape architecture practice which she's the director of. We created a series of outdoor rooms that were directly connected to new and old buildings, so that people could, you know, come outside for their break and sit in that area and feel like they've got an edge to their back um, and surrounded by landscape and and. Then with time, start to move into some of these bigger spaces and and um, socialise with with other people. Um, so you know, there's there's larger group tables, there's a barbecue area, um, there's places for outdoor eating, um, and it's just it's sort of you know built from the the building out um, in terms of that layering of experience and and confident.